This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So this, this course is focusing on the progressive stages of insight into emptiness. The idea is that each turning of the Dharma reveals a slightly different teaching on emptiness. It doesn't um, uh, invalidate the teachings. It just gives a richer dimension to all the teachings. And each teaching has its own validity at that particular uh, level at which it's taught. So emptiness is probably the most important teaching in Buddhism. And uh, emptiness is a translation of the Sanskrit word sanya, which maybe means sometimes can be translated as zero or nothingness. But emptiness is not like not nothing. Okay, um, you'll all be quite familiar with some of this material. Our story starts with the, uh, the famous first turning of the Dharma wheel discourse. And that's where the Buddha introduces us to the realization to, of the pervasiveness of what it's called dukkha and the origins of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, the ending of dukkha, and the path to be followed to the cessation of dukkha. And then this discourse a few days later was immediately followed by the discourse on the not self or non self <clears throat> characteristic, the Anatta Lakana Sutta. As we will discover, this understanding of the emptiness of self is crucial to the understanding of the four truths and the first level of insight into emptiness. Any questions or comments so far? If you do have a question or comment, remember to unmute yourself and just come in. Okay, the three stages in the process of understanding. This is kind of like a, a Tibetan viewpoint, but I think it's very relevant to our Zen practice as well. And as I've, um, I guess as, as I've grown and evolved as a Dharma teacher, I, I'm I'm very inclusive. Uh, I, 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 I see myself more as a Dharma teacher than specifically just a Zen teacher. I'm interested in the, uh, in the in the Theravada tradition. I'm interested in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but my local, my home family, my home tradition is the Zen tradition. So three stages in the process of understanding. So meditation is regarded as the third stage in the development of understanding. The first stage is simply to listen to or study the teachings with an open mind. The second stage is to reflect on the teachings in order to clarify their true significance. So you may, you know, read a Dharma book or listen to a Dharma talk. And then, you know, you might just uh, reflect on that teaching throughout the day. Certain phrases may come to mind and you might get certain insights just through reading and listening. 
In the third stage, the realization takes place at the level of our being. So not intellectual understanding, but experiential understanding. In a sense, this is putting the teachings into practice. Practice in the sense of being the teachings rather than thinking about the teachings. As friends together in the Dharma, we can share our understandings with each other, but ultimately we must all come to our own understanding and realization. Because there are many different interpretations of what this understanding and realization is. And as the Buddha said in his final discourse before he died, be a light unto yourself. Do not depend on others. So what is it ultimately that you can depend on? That's just an open question. I'm not necessarily asking you to jump in and answer that question. But um, that's, that's, that's say, uh, what is it that ultimately we can depend upon? So any, any um, questions or comments that, from that paragraph? Jill. Yeah. Um, I, I sometimes, um, uh, sometimes feel a bit uneasy. Uh, I don't know. To, to, that line about uh, be a light unto yourself. You know, question everything and and um, uh, you know, make up your own mind about stuff and put it into practice. You know, I, I, of course, I can understand the merit of that, and I really. Um, uh, I, I think it's a, a great sort of approach rather than the top-down sort of telling you that this is what is and you must do this and you must do that. But I sometimes feel a bit, um, what's the word? Uh, 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 yeah, wondering if if I'm on the right track. I, I guess that's what a teacher is for to, to, to discuss stuff with. But, you know, like they don't sometimes feels like the, Am I on the, like, how do I know that I'm in the process of right thinking? You know, like, I could be just go off on a tangent and I could be just completely crackers, like, you know, thinking all sorts of stuff and call myself a Buddhist, but maybe not be living according to a lot of Buddhist philosophy. I don't know. Does that oh, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. And, um, I guess that's the purpose of Sangha. Um, you know, I mean, basically, teachers are just senior students um, that have a particular role. Um, or we, we come together as a Sangha to try and um, understand these teachings. So you've got the first two levels are very important. The, the first two levels, all a teacher can really do is work on the, the, the first two levels and they can only point to the experiential dimension. I can only use words or gestures or, um, you know, to point to being, to point to the experiential dimension. And, um, and also in terms, but in terms of like, you know, you can bring your lived experience to discussions with other Sangha members. You can bring your lived experience to discussions with teachers 
I'm always willing to respond to written communications. You can always make an appointment for an individual interview. That's what they're for, to try and clarify and discuss these things. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, and then, you know, the lived experience of the teachings in the sense of which do you, get, you have some sense of um, how the teachings are having an impact or affecting your daily life and making sense out of that. Um, um, and, uh, and then discussing that once again. And, but ultimately, um, the, uh, the beautiful thing about Buddhism is that there's no, um, you know, there's no set beliefs you have to believe in. There's, there's no dogmas. Um, mm. And, um, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you're going to, in, in, the, in, the, in the vast expanse of, of Buddhism, you're going to come across different interpretations all the time of the teachings. And it, you know, there's a there's a kind of uh, a little bit of a myth, but there's kind of like an idea in Buddhism that the 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 Buddha taught in different ways to different people as well. So I you know I mean I will try and catch my understanding differently depending on the person I'm with. Mm. Uh, but like um, ultimately, yeah. Um, in the end, what can we depend on? Mm. Your teacher might die. You might your books might burn. What's the only mm. in the end? What's the ultimate thing that you can depend on? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And there's two ways I interpret that. Be a light. And there's probably more than two ways you could interpret it. But there's two ways I interpret the light one. You know, one is the notion of um, um, um. Uh, self-realization or self-recognition that direct experiential understanding and the other thing is you know what is uh, is light is sometimes used as a metaphor as well for um uh, that which we are pointing to as the ultimate reality if you like but then again there are different interpretations of that as well so yeah. um you know, when we talk about taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, uh, I mean, what are we taking refuge in? So, you know, partly in the teachings, but partly in that direct realization of awakening. Uh, Buddha just simply means one who is awakened. What is what is that awakening to? What are you recognizing? And um, again, yeah. that's the experiential dimension. That's so for each of us, that's the answer to that's going to be different. Yes and yes and no. Um, um, there will be when we when we try and put it into words, it'll often sound different. Um, but um, and, we, and we just do our best when we when we when we're having conversations. But any kind of conversation is never it in a sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. You all know this part, but I'll just go through it quickly. The, the Buddha's, the story of the Buddha, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, so the story of Siddhartha Gautama, his mother died when he was very young, raised by his father, who was a, um, a kind of a local king or aristocrat, uh, had lots of wealth, protected his son. And, uh, but uh, in the end, uh, 
his father couldn't contain the Buddha Siddhartha within the in the walls of the palace, and he sees the, the, the he sees the stand and the and the corpse and the aged person and the mendicant, and and he goes off in search of uh, some kind of solution to this problem of or, or what, he, what he later calls dukkha. He has his awakening, and uh, after going through you know all those different kinds of practices various forms of asceticism that which were prevalent during those times and uh at first he was hesitant to teach because he wasn't sure this is the stories that's passed down he wasn't sure that people would understand the teachings and the first teachings he gives the first turning of the wheel of dharma and the teachings on the not self or the non-self were given to the five friends of his the five monks that became the the uh, um the, 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 the beginnings of the Sangha. He taught for the rest of his life um, and uh, without, without a home or family, although, you know, there are, you know, apparently he, some stories say he, did, he, he was married with a child and, and uh, before he left the palace. Um, and he never... He never wrote down a word. There's, there's no written words by the Buddha, uh, similarly, like, similarly like with Socrates. All we know about Socrates is the Plato's writings about Socrates. So the, the actual, um, the Buddhist teachings were written down after he died. At the first, Apparently it was a big council that was held after his death and then there was another council a bit later on and Ananda had a good memory and so on. So people kind of like had good, good memories in those days and they were able to write down what they remembered of the teachings. And there was another guy, I forget his name, who remembered all the rules and he wrote down all the rules of the monastery, monastic rules and so on. And later the, the, uh, the commentaries on these teachings called suttas in the Pali or sutras in the Sanskrit, they were followed later and became known as the Abhidharma, the higher teachings and that was the beginning of buddhist philosophy in a way so um then you can ask yourself the question what did he wake up to and each turning of the wheel will have a different sort of interpretation or answer to that question anyone else want to come in there any comments or questions on the the story of the buddha I was just kind of thinking when you talked about the um, how how he grew up, sort of in this his father tr trying to protect him and living in this kind of sheltered enclosure. It's kind of like uh, an interesting kind of metaphor for how we. Um, sometimes try and protect ourselves and then life kind of happens <laughs> yeah I, I agree david i think it's a it's a really good metaphor yeah um in a sense it's a kind of metaphor of attachment theory isn't it really our our parents uh, do their best to try and to protect us from the uh um, from from emotional suffering and uh, and so forth as best they can, but 
inevitably they can't protect us. Yeah. Mm. And even whilst trying to protect us, they're kind of uh, in some ways uh, limiting our growth. That, yes, there can there can be certain. We can certainly suggest that the uh, Siddhartha's father was overprotective. In, a, in an extreme way, probably. <laughs> we could also um, assume that he was indulged because he was a prince and he lived inside the palace. And, you know, most of all of his needs pretty much would have been physical needs would have been met. Um, as you say, some stories say how he married his cousin and had a child, and so you know, emotional needs and, and physical and material needs. So, um, that contrasts beautifully with the later part of the story where he becomes and um, completely denies himself all those things. Yes, indeed, and uh, one could possibly hypothesize that uh, when he left the palace, he was also suffering from pangs of guilt for incurred looking at the poverty that lay outside of the palace. Jill, did you have something you wanted to contribute? A question or comment? No? Okay. All right, um, let's move on to the next section, the four truths. And most of you would know the four practice principles are a rewording of the four truths. And uh, so the, the four truths come from the first turning of the Dharma wheel discourse. So what is he in this in the first turning, basically, he, he awakens to the four truths. After inquiring into the nature of reality through his meditation practice. The four truths are not something you are required to believe in, uh, like a religious dogma. Rather, they are to be understood and practiced and realized. The, uh, the four truths are kind of like one of the teachings that nearly all schools of Buddhism will have some kind of allegiance to. So it's like they unify the vast world of Buddhism. Um, and all or nearly all? I think all. Uh, but I can't I can't I can't say definitively, but but I would suspect so. Uh, though the precise interpretation of these commitments will differ from school to school. So in the first turning, the Buddha wakes up to the truth of dukkha which we will translate as suffering, but there's problems with that, but bear with me. So Dukkha is always here in our lives. But according to the four truths, it can also come to an end. And why can it come to an end? Because according to the teachings, it has a cause. So if we can free ourselves from the cause, the idea is we can free ourselves from Dukkha. So the truth of Dukkha is the first teaching, the first truth. You could say these are just one truth with four different aspects to it, if you like, or one practice with four different aspects. So the truth of Dukkha. The... 
So this is this is where it gets interesting. And this is kind of like the genius of the Buddha in a way. Because dukkha is more than just pain, but but it certainly often they talk about three three different kinds of dukkha. So there's a dukkha of physical and psychological pain or physical and mental pain. Then there's the dukkha of change, impermanence. And then there's the dukkha of what we might describe as causal interdependence or conditioning. And I want you to get an idea of the actual, you know, pervasiveness of dukkha. So I'm just going to... Um, this is from a book by Jay Garfield, who is a well-known philosopher in Buddhism. He actually spent some time at, I met him once, he was teaching at Tas, in the University of Tasmania in Hobart. But unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't able to stay in Hobart at the time. So, but, um, so I just, let me just read a bit of Garfield and you, you will all have get an idea of it. So like, um, at the most mundane and obvious level, our lives are permeated by dukkha. In its manifestation as straightforward physical and mental pain. We endure headaches, illnesses, the boredom of airport terminals, fatigue at the end of the, a long day, hunger, thirst, difficulties in interpersonal relationships, the anxiety of the dentist's waiting room, <laughs> the awareness of our own mortality, the terror of imminent death. We suffer the annoyance of not having what we want. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? And dissatisfaction with what we have. How can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> Most of us experience at least some aspect of this discomfort daily. So that is the most superficial aspect of the pervasiveness of dukkha. And it should be obvious that just about anything and anyone in our environment can, in the right circumstances, be the occasion for dukkha. If we are lucky enough to experience a day in which none of this occurs, we might say to ourselves as we settle in for a glass of good wine in the evening, life is good. But even here there is dukkha, in this first sense, even in a more subtler manifestation. For we must be aware that others are experiencing the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that we have today avoided. We might feel sympathy for them, a sadness that they are in pain, even if we are not. When something is wrong with my baby, something is wrong with me. And that emotional pain in us is dukkha occasioned not only by the discomfort, but also, paradoxically, by our own comfort, which we know is, in the end, a matter of chance and not something we earned. After all, who earns the good fortune not to have been born in a war zone or without a ghastly hereditary illness? On the other hand, we might not be troubled by pangs of sympathy or guilt when we contemplate our good fortune and the suffering of others. In that case, however, we do not avoid this subtle dukkha, but suffer from a deeper and more subtle version of it. For none of us could contemplate a self that is utterly indifferent to the suffering of others, 
and utterly complacent about one's own privilege with complete approval. None of us, that is, would want our children to grow up to be like that, or would honor a colleague for those traits. Therefore, if we notice this attitude in ourselves, we experience the dukkha of knowing that we are less than we, sh we would be, that we cannot reflectively endorse our own attitudes, and we experience the dukkha of shame. But that's just the first level of dukkha. <laughs> oh, the second level is the pervasive dukkha of change and impermanence. You know, none of us are going to live forever. We're all aging and we know it. Each moment of our life is a moment closer to infirmity, pain, dementia, <laughs> the loss of our loved ones and death. Each moment of life is therefore necessarily bound up with dukkha when we know that. Everything we enjoy, all sources of conditioned happiness are also impermanent and so are slipping from our grasp. The best bottle of wine will soon be empty. The sunset lasts only a few minutes. Our children age. We tire of what was once our favorite music. This too is a source of dukkha. And then finally, the third and most profound sense of dukkha and the one that gets us most directly to its pervasive character is the dukkha of pervasive conditioning. We live in a world of inextricable interdependence where most of the causal change that impinge on our well-being are outside of our control. We cannot seize a day or our own destiny and control it. We cannot stand on our own two feet. However much we may be exhorted to do so, our well-being, security and success depend not only upon our own efforts, but upon our genetics, the weather, earthquakes, the presence of disease, the decisions of political leaders, just plain luck, other drivers on the road, the skills of the pilot who flies the plane, the judgment of a doctor, or the kindness of strangers. So we can be subject to misfortune at any time. So like uh, Garfield says, the Buddha's genius was instead to see that dukkha is the fundamental structure of our lives. To be human is to live in dukkha. So even though the translation, so you can see how the translation of suffering doesn't do dukkha justice, but there's diff English different translations, dissatisfactoriness, discontent, but from now on, I'm just going to translate it as suffering because that's one of the usual translations. So even though suffering doesn't do dukkha justice, just try and bear that in mind. So any comments or questions on the perversiveness of dukkha, even though you didn't already know that already? <laughs> uh, it, it sounds to me like um, like what sort of dukkha is, is, is the, um, the human condition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's an uh, that, in a nutshell, Angie. You, you got it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And I think, Andrew, it's always good to be reminded, like through a talk like we're having now, of uh, actually the the immense complexity of of dukkha and and the human condition. You know, uh, as well. You know, to be reminded that it it. It manifests on such a, an amazing range of levels. It's it's not you can't just simply call it suffering. You know, as 
you know, in that sense. And it's, yeah. it's reminded of that, you know, like you say, you know, it can be anything from a toothache to losing a loved one, you know, that it's just that profound. It's, it's, it's great to be reminded of that. Yeah. Thank you. I have... Um... Jeremy. I've struggled with the idea of like of trying to understand emptiness, and I read, I think I was reading Understanding. No, was it called Realizing Genjo Khan? The other day, he, um, the author suggested that emptiness was the second and third part of the of dukkha. There, impermanence and causal interdependence. As that as a definition of emptiness. Exactly. Yeah. Everything's... You're just getting a little bit ahead of us, but you're oh, on, we... you're on the money. Yeah, that's right. I thought yeah. I was going backwards. That's no. good. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. David, um, I might also be getting ahead, or I might be way behind. But just wondering about the relationship. I mean, you said the Buddha, the genius of the Buddha, was was the like realization of the pervasive nature and the nature of existence as dukkha but i'm sort of wondering okay so where did how did dukkha and dharma relate as concepts or maybe just words that may be a problematic question to try and answer briefly but just whether you had a quick reflection on that yeah, the, 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 there are lots of different meanings of the word Dharma, and Dharma itself is a, is a word that's passed down in the Indian tradition, not just in Buddhism. Um, but let's just simply suggest that uh, you know Dharma can be can be interpreted as the uh, the, uh, the teachings that lead to you know the and, and the wisdom of insight into the way things actually are. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, and this is contested, but like seeing the nature of reality. In other words, uh, uh, Dharma is, is seeing Dharma in a sense, seeing the nature of reality, awakening to the nature of reality. And in, 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 the, in waking to the nature of reality lies the, hopefully the potential, um, the nirvanic aspects of the teachings. So you said just then Dharma is seeing the intrinsic nature of Dharma, but did you mean... It, it, yeah, Dharma... Dharma that includes Dukkha, also seeing... Yeah, Dharmas are sometimes used as... They, they use, it's, it's, it's a fairly... Uh, has multiple meanings. Sometimes sure. Dharmas are, are referred to the, um, uh, the momentary fleeting constituents of reality. Which um, would include Dukkha. Sorry, I was just trying to clarify... Which would which would which would include dukkha? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the origin. So the second truth is the origin. Uh, so this is the cause of of dukkha or the cause of suffering. And uh, suffering. Uh, so the the usual line is suffering is all pervasive because of ignorance. Uh, but people like Garfield prefer the term primal confusion um, about the true nature of reality. So I'm just going to quote the, this confusion as the great 14th and 15th century Tibetan philosopher Tsongkhapa felicitously puts it is not mere ignorance, 
but the positive superimposition of a characteristic on reality that it lacks. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the way in which we construct reality or superimpose onto reality. Uh, we kind of like intellectually know it's impermanent. We kind of like understand it's impermanent, but it's really hard to actually get around not imposing a sense of permanence and onto reality. And similarly, we can see everything's interdependent, but it's really hard not to impose a sense of independence onto the reality, the sense I have an independent self and there are independent objects and independent people. Um, so ignorance of the true nature of reality and, and also the way in which we superimpose a construction onto reality which causes our suffering. In the first turning, so this is ignorance, you can interpret it as ignorance of these four truths. And because of this ignorance, then in the tanha or desire arises. And desire can take the form of attachment or aversion, greed or hatred. It's basically desire for existence or non-existence. So when, it, when, when those abstract words can be simplified, as it's a desire for things to be the way we want them to be. And, and, and for things that we don't like, we want them to go away. That's, that's, that's the clinging to existence and non-existence. I don't want that in my life, or I want that in my life. That's, the, that's, the, that's what gets us into trouble. And we think we can control things, and because uh, and, uh, that, that's part of the desire to control our lives so that we experience more pleasure and less pain usually. And uh, so the source of this, the source of that desire is ignorance of the true nature of reality, the tr the, the, it's ignorance of the four truths. But the good news is if you can transform that ignorance into wisdom, then desire will not arise, it will be extinguished. So that's the second truth. So the core problem is ignorance. So suffering continues to arise because we consistently refuse to see reality the way it really is. It's always changing. There is no such thing as an independent personal self that does not change. It is empty of intrinsic nature, which is another word for emptiness. If there is a self, it is interdependent and always changing from moment to moment, depending on the context. Hence, if we have not awakened to the four truths, it is the process of ongoing suffering. And as we will see below, the kind of personal self that the Buddha is targeting here is the sense of a separate personal self that owns its thoughts and feelings and has some kind of independent agency and control over these thoughts and feelings. This sense of having a separate personal self or ego self feels very real, and because we consistently fail to see the nature of reality as it really is, as ongoing impermanence and conditioned interdependence, we suffer. One way of understanding being caught in the self-centered dream is the never-ending, futile effort to control that which is uncontrollable. So suffering comes to an end when we stop imposing or taking our imaginary constructions of reality to be true. So that's the, the, the second truth. Um, 
This first turning of suffering is primarily explained by the notion of clinging to the five skandhas. So this is very important in the first teachings. It's mistaking the skandhas for self. So the skandhas, you've all come across the skandhas or the aggregates before, but we'll just go quickly through them. The first one's material form, consisting of the physical elements, solidity, cohesion, heat, air, and the, the physical elements that make up the body of a living being and more subtle proceeds derived from that. The second skanda is feeling, that's the quality of, of experiencing that is a hedonic tone, whether pleasant, painful, or neither. This is not the same as emotion, though it accompanies every, any emotion or sensory experience. The third scandal you could sort of translate as perception, conception. It's a kind of knowledge that arises of cognition, mental labeling, interpretation, recognition. In other words, when you say, I've got a headache, that label headache is a perception, conception of what you're feeling and experiencing. Mental formations or constructing activities, samskaras, there are a range of mental responses to objects with will or volition being the leading one, but others being planning, lines of thoughts, emotions, habits. I would include in that all kinds of, all kinds of um, experiences that we've had in the past that have been quite, you know, that may have been little T traumatizing or big T traumatizing that will come up and get repeated in the future. And, uh, and the final one I call sensory or dependent consciousness, that is discriminative consciousness, which is dependent upon sense objects. So like, um, if you lose your sight of the in your eyes, you won't experience visual images. If you lose sound in your ear, if you lose, is a problem with your hearing, uh, with your ears, you won't hear sounds. So that's the kind of consciousness which is dependent upon uh that kind of functioning uh, uh discriminative consciousness sensory discernment how we can distinguish between sounds and sensations and thoughts and feelings etc etc and according to the buddha's teaching we identify with and mistake these skandhas for an independent personal self. But when we look closely, there is no independent personal self to be found. Mistaking the skandhas for a separate independent personal self is at the core of our ignorance and hence our suffering. Any comments or questions? We've only got about seven minutes left for today, so we're not going to get through all this today. Um, any questions or comments? Just go on to the cessation of suffering. So attachment, aversion and ignorance are the fuel which keeps the fire of suffering burning. Once the fuel supply ceases, the suffering ceases. In the first turning, Nirvana is simply or Nibbana is simply the cessation or extinguishment of suffering. And remembering that suffering is another name for the separate personal self, we could say Nirvana is seeing clearly that an independent separate personal self or ego self is an illusion. The illusion of the separate personal self is the process of suffering. And finally, the fourth one is the path to the cessation of suffering, which you're all familiar with. 
So the good news is that the mind is not inherently ignorant. Hence, there is a path leading to the cessation of suffering by cultivating wisdom through the practice of philosophy and meditation and expressing this wisdom through compassionate action in the world. I won't go into all the details of the Eightfold Path, but the, it starts with right view and followed by right intention. So they often bracketed as the wisdom aspects of the path followed by three action aspects of the path or the ethical aspects of the path, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood. They get expanded in the precepts. And then the right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration relating to the practice of meditation. So right view and right intention are wisdom, prajna, seeing the nature of reality. In one sense, right intention follows on from right view, etc., etc., etc. But it is also said that all factors are mutually reinforcing of each other. So I might um, stop there and next time we'll, we'll, we'll go into the Anatta Lakana Sutta or the Buddha's discourse on the non-self characteristic. Um, the second teaching that he gave and the instructions he gives.